You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. On Sundays, what we're reading as a, as a community is uh, the book of Mark. Uh, Mark, of all the gospel writers, uh, wants to hone in on this one uh, characteristic of uh, Jesus, that Jesus in Mark 10 um, uh, portrays himself as a servant, not as to be served, but to serve others. And um, in, in the following of the disciples, we're recognizing he's calling his disciples, followers like you and me, to know less than that. That um, what you're getting is, it's funny that Jesus, he preaches his most confusing sermons on Easter. With the biggest crowds, he gets more confusing. Uh, he is um, doing less skits and less, uh, less puns and jokes. He's just kind of giving it to him straight. And he is not afraid of, of allowing crowds to turn away. Um, that he says the kingdom of heaven is more like a mustard seed than it is like a big flash in the pan. It's a small thing for a few people. There's a certain kind of soil that the, the seed of the kingdom of heaven can get into, not in the crowds, not in the celebrities, not in the YouTubes, not in the big high points of, of a fallen Christ, but in those small, sometimes dark nights of the soul that the seed of the kingdom of heaven comes alive and differentiates between the crowd and the disciple. And so the theme that we're seeing from the book of Mark is that Jesus is not a celebrity, and he's not bringing the kingdom of heaven through a bunch of hype. The kingdom of heaven comes through small seeds, through secrets with his Father in heaven, and he's following, he's having disciples follow after him. And, um, and that ultimately, to be and make a disciple is not just about listening to sermons, but about walking through storms with Jesus. Not just in understanding the parables cognitively, but believing in those parables when it is that we encounter spiritual evil that we're going to encounter in the pages that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 5 today. So um, I, I thought that, um, that it, was, it was kind of ironic. I, I, sometimes you have those moments where you're like, God must have a sense of humor. In kind of an expository church like ours, walking through books of the Bible, that um, I don't plan which scriptures end up on which days. He plans the scriptures that end up on which days. Back in January, he knew we were going to be in Mark chapter 5. And I just thought that was funny and winsome and appropriate that we're going to talk about pretty much the most demonic story in the entire Bible two days before Halloween. So if there's elephants in the room, it's not me. That's the spirit talking to you. Um, no, just to make light of it, I mean, I, I've been a Halloweener for probably my whole life. I mean, basically, mainly I'm about the candy and the superheroes, and I'll do anything it takes to put on the, candy, put on the superhero co- uh, costume to get the candy. And so a couple of, um, of B-roll footage from my childhood there of uh, me and Grandpa Joe doing Zorro. And uh, Zorro came on at 5 o'clock right before Star Trek Next Generations. And, and, and everybody knows Superman, Superman but you've got to be a, a superhero just guru if you dress up like Zorro. And that was me. That was Zorro uh, that I went for his Halloween one year. Next uh, slide there is the old Superman. Early often got to me. Um, I got to know Keanu Reeves early in my life, earlier than, than I probably would have if he wasn't Superman. And the thing about Halloween in the, in, in the North, if you guys are from New York, is a bummer, is you get all that outfit on, you get all the hype going, and then your mom just, like, puts you with the parka and the hat and the jackets, and you just look like you have a dress coming out of, you know, the back of your, uh, the back of your jacket. The next slide there is, uh, yep, Superman, all, all the years. He's, he's a baseline for me. Next slide is the goat that I fed, and uh, that's how you knew I was going to be a Michael Jordan fan. There you go. Uh, no, that's, um, that's me just every day of, of the year. And then, and, then, and then Dick Tracy, Warren Beatty, Dick Tracy. I forgot to send that last picture, but this year uh, I am going to be dressing up like, um, like Bert uh, with, with, my, with my mother as Mary Poppins. So I'll make sure that you guys see a picture of that of my chimney sweep outfit that I have going on ready for us. So. 
Um, yeah, as I, as I get older and older, you know, I, 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 as a Christian, I think I, I am, you know, torn uh, about the Halloween thing, what to do about it. I was walking in my little prayer uh, walk this morning before, before church in the dark, and, uh, and this big, like, Chucky doll comes out of my neighbor's bushes, you know, uh, just down Simpsonville, and I didn't ask for that. I was just praying, and all the scary stuff jumps out from me. I'm not skittish and asking for it, but golly, it gets crazy out there in the suburbs sometimes. Um, you know, I think there is a level of just healthy sobriety and, and sensitivity to it. I mean, I, like, I think, um, you know, in, in some ways it's just about Friday the 13th, it's just a movie that you saw with your boyfriend or something when you were a young kid. But at the same time, you walk down to this earth for long, and if you don't have to be a Christian to know that, like, stuff on that movie isn't so far from the truth. And that, um, that it is hard for some Christians and non-believers to, to see Halloween and, and some of the things that go on in Halloween because it's like for them, it's not just a movie they saw. It's like something that they experienced in their bedroom. Like there is real spiritual evil that people, some of us experience more subtly, some of us experience more, more overtly. Some of us you see on Dateline or crime shows or, or, or Jeffrey Dahmer, like, like evil um, is not just incidental and accidental. It can be very personal and very violent and very aggressive um, in, in, the, in the world that we, that we live in. But at the same time, it's just about candy <laughs> to most of us, right? And there's nothing wrong with a kid dressing up like Batman and knocking on the door and asking for candy. So how do you live in the world and not of the world? Uh, how do you not just, you know, turn into Ebenezer Grinch and turn off the lights and pretend like you don't hear that five-year-old kid with the princess cowboy outfit that you're not giving candy? You know, I don't know how to, how to handle that, you know? But right, like in a, in a, in a kingdom where we're explicitly told to love and preach the gospel to our neighbors, what other holiday do we have neighbors knocking on our door, coming up to us and, 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 and speaking to us? And I've met more neighbors, you know, on some of these little trick-or-treat circles. So walk through it with discernment for your own faith, as Paul says, about the minors, you know, of, of what it means to walk out as a Christian in 2023. But mark this, is, is that it is pretty apparent and obvious at a time like Halloween that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, People long and desire to know the truth about the unseen world. Like Halloween, if anything, at Christmas we're asking and and wishing people would be less materialistic. I wish people would be more spiritual and less about the things of the material world. At Halloween, if anything, the conversation is wide open for the spiritual world. If there's any time when people are more interested in what goes on in the supernatural and the spiritual world, it's during this time, it seems like, when the world has, you know, has attention. Because ultimately, I I think that people want to know about that truth because they're actually not just cells and embryos that are walking around. We are spiritual beings that know we come from a spiritual place. And we know that evil is not just random and, and ornamental. It is real and potent sometimes and personal and aggressive sometimes. And, and I think that is what this little holiday can, can bring about, I think, in our, in our thoughts and in life. And so as we turn the page into Mark chapter 5, I mean, you're basically going to read a part of the scripture today that I'm like, Am I supposed to read this little Ollie? Like, it's terrifying. What in the world is going on? Legions and demons and pigs and just a bunch of crazy stuff that would put Halloween to shame. And, and it's a moment in the scriptures when, um, when wh- where it is in, in, in many of the pages of Genesis Revelation, you can see shadows of spiritual evil that when we turn the page into Mark 5, we actually get to see a sheer spiritual evil. Not just subtle, but extreme spiritual evil manifested and obvious and unmasked that we would see it for what it is. That it's not just, you know, a, a one guy in a church. There's a guy and he's like, I'm legion. I mean, geez, the Bible like gets into it pretty quick of overt spiritual evil. That it's very aggressive. That it's got a guy running around in a cemetery cutting himself and screaming. 
that it's very extraordinary that the demons get cast out into pigs. They get driven into the Sea of Galilee to be drowned. What is God doing to terrify our kids? And I like, what is this even about that he would put it in the pages of our scripture? I think this is the philosophy, the principle that I see, is that sometimes in order to see the subtleties of spiritual evil, you need to see the extremes of spiritual evil. So for example, um, uh, Kyra had to teach me to be afraid of, of cockroaches. I never had a bunch of cockroaches. She should be like, oh, cockroaches. I'm like, they're just little palmetto bags. They're not a big deal. I don't have to get... There was one time we went downstairs, and parents, we handled the situation. It was great. You'll be real proud of me and Timothy. Went down, and one of the kids in the kids' ministry pulled up one of the, the sewage pipes from underneath the carpet down there when we first moved, moved to the Sweetbriar, and it wasn't 20, okay? A, a legion doesn't mean 50. Like, it was like 1,000 little cockroaches down there, right? It was like 1,000 cockroaches. And I would like to say that I acted cool, calm, and collective the same way as you thought that you would be acting cool, calm, and collective, but I did not. I screamed like a little child. And, uh, and I went over to the Walmart and got the spray gun, and Timothy jumped up on the seat, and I was basically spraying these things like heaven and hell depended on. I was spraying these little cockroaches and just hoping that the potency of this poison was better than their endurance because they were crawling out one by one, marching, you know, in a single file line into the children's rooms. No! Luckily, like, it had about a 10-second duration, and they, they dropped dead for your own consolation so that you know. Sometimes you have to see the obvious of something, especially spiritual evil, to recognize the subtlety of something. Sometimes you have to go to like an AA meeting and see somebody run the extent of abusive substances to recognize you might not be addicted as much and as far as that person, but you still have subtleties of addictions in your heart when you see some of those things. That the ways that some people that are underneath the oppression of addiction where they they hide and lie and cheat and steal and twist the truth, that they go through their 12 steps. I mean, like, in some ways you listen to these things as they're being set free. You're not so sure that they're not more a slave than you are. Maybe, maybe they're freer than you are when you're listening to their story. And something in your, even your eyes can tear up as you listen to them tell a story that's so extreme and foreign to you, but somehow still so familiar to you. Sometimes you have to see the extremes of uh, the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. And you can listen to like, uh, a military person rehearse the death of somebody in their mind and, and, and repeat it and freeze and kind of experience it all at once to, to help you recognize not the extreme, but the subtle pieces of trauma that you carry in your heart. When you see the extreme versions of it, sometimes it gives clarity for the subtle versions of it. Or when, when disaster hits a marriage and all of the small little things that broke the camel's back added up to become the big thing and it you know, it all exacerbated into this one really marriage-breaking event. But when you see the big marriage-breaking event, you realize that the big event was really just a culmination of many small events. And all of, this, all of the extreme contents are really made up of the small little seeds that exist in all of our marriages. And sometimes the warning signs and seeing the extreme version of something helps us understand, understand the subtle. And so I think, if anything, what Mark 5 is trying to tell us is that, you know, we may never meet a, a demon named Legion. And we may never cast out a demon uh, of thousands of demons out of a, a demoniac that's running around cutting himself and harming himself and crying. Himself. We'll never see demons cast into pigs and run into the ocean. But all of us have our demons. All of us have, have, have a, a personal and intelligent sinister enemy that is unseen, that wants to, that's to kill and steal and destroy. And it, and it might be the demon of pride or the demon of lust or the demon of self-pity or the demon of self-loathing or vanity, but all of us have spiritual evil, evil around us 
that the full sozo that we see in the demoniac when he's healed is not just to be saved from the wrath of God and not just to be healed from the wounds of walking down this earth, but to be delivered of evil. What does the scripture tell us about, about who we are on this earth as Lord? If there's anything, if we know ourselves rightly before the Father in heaven, Lord, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. I think that sometimes that we practice Halloween because sometimes putting the bed sheet and cutting the holes out of the eyes to pretend like we're a ghost helps us minimize and laugh at something we're really scared of. It's actually easier to dress up like the one who's causing terror than to be the one that's terrorized. and actually mitigates and mutes out some of the fears that we have. We are not able to cope or overcome our demons. We will need a savior for that. We are not bigger than spiritual evil. We are not, we are not stronger or smarter than our enemy is. We will need Jesus for that. That Jesus does not come to cope with our spiritual evil, but comes to cancel and demolish spiritual strongholds. This is the main passage we might even fixate on for, through the rest of Mark 5, is 1 John 3, 8. Jesus did not just come to save sinners, but to, to destroy the work of Satan. The reason that God came as a suffering servant was not just to be a doormat, but to conquer your enemy and to fight the battle you couldn't fight on your behalf. And the reason why God came is to, is, to, is to dismantle and destroy. And so the difference between Halloween and Mark is that Halloween comes to infatuate us with evil. I would say if, you, it's like if Jesus is here and he's walking amongst us, I, don't, I just don't think he's going to put a Freddy Krueger mask on and grab a knife. Like I just, I can't compensate that in my head. I mean, I think he's going to like love on kids that come to his door, but I just don't think it's the thing that he's celebrating. It's not to be infatuated. And there is something seductive about Stranger Things and, 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 and the deep principalities, because I think they're real. But there's a difference between be, be, being infatuated and educated. And the reason why we're being educated is because, like C.S. Lewis says, not that we're materialists or magi- magicians, but that we are aware, familiar, and ready for what Jesus comes to do, which is to locate and to destroy the works of the devil in our midst. So Mark 5 says, says this. In verse 1, it says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and so the Gerasenes doesn't mean anything to us. But Gerasenes, if you can imagine, is kind of like Vegas. It's like the deep, dark um, uh, uh, idolatry and, and, and scandalous sin and types of things that happens on the other side of the tracks kind of a thing. And so just imagine, you know, like your most conservative church bus packs in all of its disciple people and just trucks off to Vegas, okay, and see what happens, right? Like it's the most, um, it's the most loose, um, unrestrained sample of, of human kind of debauchery. And so verse 2 says, when, when Jesus gets out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit comes up from the tombs to meet him. Any parents in the room, when, when the alarm doesn't go off and your kid is already in your face, you know what I'm saying? Like you don't even get a chance to get out of the bed and the kid's in your face. It's going to be one of these types of days. No sooner than he gets out of the boat, he's got a thousand demons at his face. An impure spirit comes um, out of them uh, to, to, to the tomb. And so I do think that you could mark this as part of the devil's strategy. Sometimes it's the scariest thing is the first step. Sometimes the scariest step is just that first step. And the enemy knows that you will gain confidence because the first step makes it easier for the second step. And so he puts a lot of weight on that first step. But what we see here is is very unique to the rest of Scripture because usually, usually there is more coversion, more subtlety, more sophistication and craftiness, as Genesis 3 talks about, to what the enemy does. Here we have the exact opposite. We have unhidden, unlimited, and unadulterated evil. Like if you were to ask yourself the question, what would it be like to see unhidden, unmasked, unadulterated, to look into the face of evil without it being hidden, what would it look like? This is what I think Mark says. Verse 3, the man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him. 
Not even a chain could, could keep this man down. Verse 4 says, For he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons with his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills. He would cry out and cut himself with stones. So, so at least the face value, what I see is if evil was here in our midst, if it was unhidden, if it was unlimited, it was unadulterated, whatever, what scale or size it is, embodied evil looks like this, is that there's a way to be down here with, a, with, a, with airway, breathing, respiration. There's a way to be down here with a pulse but not be fully spiritually alive. That it's that's the, the devil's work. Sometimes you go to downtown Greenville of people that are marking all of the things that at, uh, at Greenville Memorial that would mark that person for physical life, but you can see something is missing when it comes to spiritual life. That you can actually engage somewhere in between the, the doorway of those two things, and, and, and the enemy works there. That the enemy enlarges this guy's sin, literally so much so that we will not, we, although we know his sin, we don't know his name. That somehow that sin, how many of you guys know of, of certain sins of, of licentiousness or, or drug addiction or... Or, um, or, or murder, or, or sexual assault that, that are so profound in society that they eclipse the identity of the person. We don't even call them by that name anymore. We just call them that thing that they did with an ER at the end of it, right? And then, not only that, that it isolates. This is what the work of the enemy does. That, the, that ultimately, that these people, like, they, do, they can't stop him. All the best they can do is chain him to a grave. That he is literally so overcome by evil that the best thing he can do for his society is just to stay away from it, to be contained by it. And then, and then not only that, that he so, he so loathes and hates himself that he cuts himself, is cutting something that, that existed for all of humanity, not just a problem of 2023, that to cut yourself is not only a cry for help, but it's to silence the demons inside of you. That if I can, that if I can focus on a pain that I can force on my physical body, it actually becomes loud enough that it drowns out the pain of my spiritual existence is what cutting is. And it's to try and atone for and pay for the guilt that I'm experiencing in my life. This is the work of the enemy, whether big or small, subtle or overt, scary or, or, or just kind of um, sneaky and in the background and in the shadows. The devil always demonizes, but Jesus works to humanize. And so if you look at this table here, this is, I think, what, what the enemy is doing. Like he probably will most of the time not be speaking in a thousand voices through a microphone through a guy named Legion, but he's probably going to visit your home and your, and your dreams and your sleep patterns and your temptations in ways that are far more subtle than we would see in this scripture. But sometimes you have to see the extreme to notice the subtle. Sometimes you'd have to see a thousand cockroaches to understand the problem of one. And so I think this is what we would see. I just chop it up for myself, at least, in my own biblical study. But like, I think that one thing for sure we would have in common with this demoniac is that the, that the enemy loves to work in, in your isolation. That no matter what language it is, if he does it big or small or woos you or pushes you or bullies you, he loves when you're alone. He loves that when a Christian opens up the Bible, that they, they read about the body of Christ, but it quickly turns into an Instagram filter of some dream or idol that has nothing to do with the person sitting next to them in their pew. And they're thinking, oh, community would come if everybody would just look like the way I want them to look. But the person next to them has too much of a double chin and their face is too greasy and they come from a different generation and they're coming from a different race and they have a different way they talk about theology. And so we have the dream of community, but we're so lonely inside because the enemy will use whatever it takes, bullying or bribing or pushing or pulling to try and get us alone but the work of Jesus is to bring us together, to recognize that any difference that I have is not, not, not to be held against you, but to be made for you. 
Anything that I have that is more than you is not to make me better, but to make me blessed. And to offer myself is what the, what, what the gospel would do in the work of Jesus. The work of the enemy is always to, to, to cause nakedness, but not the beginning of Genesis 1 nakedness, where there was naked and unashamed. It's, it's to, to create Genesis 3 nakedness, which is naked, naked and fearful and hiding. And so, so shame is a lot like spit, right? Like, I've got spit in my mouth right now, but it doesn't gross me out because it's my spit. And there's something about sin when it's somebody else's sin that although I've got sin in my mouth, your sin seems gross to me when it gets on me. I mean, unless it's my six-month-old baby and they drool me, I guess it's okay. But other than that, if somebody spits on you, that's gross. And so what is the enemy doing? Sometimes he shows up like legion, right? And sometimes he just shows up like division. Sometimes he just shows up like, I, I, I would rather listen to this sermon pretend like it's for somebody else and not for me. And as long as I'm finding somebody else that's worse off than me, that is my atonement because as long as I'm not like them, then I have my own self-righteousness and I don't need Jesus' righteousness. And so he works through the work of, chain, of, of nakedness. He works through, the devil works through, chains that promise forgiveness, but they actually only, only offer slavery. Have you noticed that in the world that is, I mean, we're so affluent and we have so much at our disposal, we could pretty much do whatever we want whenever we want to, right? That, that in a world that, 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 that basically is driven towards me doing whatever I want whenever I want to, that calls that freedom, that that kind of freedom actually just leads me to slavery, have you noticed this? That people that end up just doing whatever they want, they basically end up getting sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right? True freedom, which is snowboarding and ballet and, and painting and sculpting and jazz, which comes from really discipline and following things and taking ownership, really, that true freedom is following Jesus, that when I follow the world's freedom, I end up having the least amount of freedom possible. How is that? Isn't that funny? That freedom in the world's domain of doing whatever I want always ends up in the top three categories of the same thing, which makes me a slave in the first place and not free. That actually freedom is not doing what I want, but it's following Jesus and and doing what he wants. That somehow when I actually take extreme ownership and extreme responsibility for the steps that I'm taking and the sins that I'm doing, that actually that is the doorway of freedom. And it's ironic that I think that that path is actually going to lead to slavery. Actually, it leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. That, that Satan works in running and it works in the, the if gospel rather than the because gospel. If we can just get our young people to listen and if we would just pray and if we would just get into the seven mountains and if we could really get good preachers and if we really change our musical thing. Like this running around of just if I can get this thing to work, then, then, I'll, be, then I'll be peaceful. But Jesus always works from the seated position. That's what he says. That he's clothed and he's seated and we're seated in heavenly places with Christ in Ephesians 2, right? That if he says it, it's done. We don't live if sermons, we live because sermons. And we live with that calmness of the way that the kingdom is coming is not by me doing more things. It's just doing what he says. It's just doing, it's just enough to do whatever he would say. And that ultimately harm, like, like the, I think that Satan works through, through, through self-harm and, and, and other people harm, that the pain that I feel, I need it outside of me. So I need something to hurt outside of me rather than something inside of me. And so it's running around and harming myself and harming others rather that the care of Jesus comes with not deafening and muting out the pain that I'm feeling, but walking through the pain with Jesus is where the healing comes. Walking through the, Jesus, walking through the pain with Jesus is where it comes. So verse six, he says, when Jesus uh, from a distance sees this demoniac, the demoniac falls on his knees in front of him and he shouts at a loud voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, do you come to torture me? He knows ahead of time what his future is, and, and he's, he's watching the time clock, and he's surprised that it's happening faster than he knows it to happen. And so the, the demoniac actually has a conversation with Jesus. What would it look like for Jesus to talk to demons? For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. 
And Jesus says to him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again not to send them out of the area. And so I don't know if your, your parents, like whenever you got in a lot of trouble, remember they would call you by your first, middle, and last name? You remember this? Like I had a friend uh, in, in, in elementary school, and his name was Mark James Robert Perez, right? And so like if it was just come to dinner, it was Mark. But like if Mark like, you know, left his shoes outside again, it was Mark James Robert Perez. And I felt like I got disciplined. I just heard those words, and I felt like I had gotten come to Jesus moment, right? Mark James Robert Perez. So there's a, there, what you have here is a name name standoff of really a fight, not just about the names, but the authority. Like if I can name something, I can steer it. I can command it, right? And so he's, he's, he's speaking out Jesus' name, son of God, the, all the official titles, but he's not doing it out of reverence, right? He's doing it out of manipulation. But Jesus ultimately in the authority class proves that it's not a thumb wrestling match between him and this demon. He is unequivocally, un, unmatched, unrivaled, victorious over this demon. And he can call it to go and stay wherever he wants it to go. And so here's this herd of pigs, and it gets kind of strange at this point. A large herd of pigs was feeding by the hillside, and the demons begged him, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into pigs. I mean, this is just crazy, just like beyond Harry Potter, like there's pigs somewhere, and there's a herder, and the demons are like asking for permission. He's like, okay, you can do it, and then they go into the pigs, and then they die, and did the pigs go in the water, and I not swim anymore? Like, what's going on, right? And he destroys the pigs in the ocean. It was a really bizarre, bizarre story. So, the key to unpacking what this is, is that, um, that this, this passage, this event, would not have just been read at face value, but it would have been read through what we would kind of consider like a political cartoon. That there are, there are elements of the story, kind of like if you were to see a political cartoon with an like, with a, with a elephant and a donkey, that are loaded. That the terms are not just at face value, they're loaded with meaning. So for example, a legion, uh, you never call a herd of pigs a legion, right? Or, or, or even that we would think of demons as legion. Legion is actually a specific reference to a measurement of Roman soldiers. The exact army that is, that is encapsulating them and surrounding them all, all sides in their exile has an army quantity called legion that pigs are farmers, they're not herders. It would have been strange to call these people pig herders because pigs don't get herded, you know, they get farmed. And so the herder is actually a reference to the lieutenant colonel or basically the people that would be over a legion that's, a, that's the Roman commander there for, for the legion. A pig is, a, is an unclean Levitical animal that you're not supposed to be eating. It's an unclean animal that's being referenced here of the Gentile land that they've set their foot into. And into is actually a reference and innuendo for sexual assault. The Roman soldiers would come over an area and come into the women that were there and oppress and, and, um, and indoctrinate and, and, uh, and, and molest uh, even physically people, people in, this, in this empire and then ultimately that Jesus goes and, and drowns and creates you know, victory um, in, in the gospel. So what's happening here is there's a message within the message. Is that here you are with these unseen enemies, unseen spiritual enemies. And then you have these, these pigs that kind of like reference the physical realm. That all really point to some of the physical enemies around them. What is he saying here is that he's making a sermon illustration. He's, he's, he's using what's physical to explain what's spiritual. And creating carryovers and parallels between... The, the, the illustration of the Roman Empire, right, in the kingdom of evil. But the point of, that, he's, that he's really making is we're really seeing what's steering the evil entity that's in their midst is that the enemy that he's pointing to is not made of flesh and blood. What he's saying in this, in this rundown of these events is not random mystical legend. Is he's saying that the Rome that you're thinking of is not really the Rome that you really need to be afraid of. That Rome is not really Rome. 
that the enemies that you have are not really your enemies. They're not the real enemies. As Paul says, they're not flesh and blood. That Hamas, the terrorists that we have that are roaming our world today, and the terrorists abroad in that country and other countries, and, and murderers and, and pedophiles, like they're not the real terrorists. The real enemies that we have are not the ones that are made of flesh and blood that can be contained and, and, and put into a pig or something. The real enemies that we have are spiritual. And so what he's pointing to is that the kingdom, that the, sorry, that the evil, the evil, the spiritual evil that we see from Jeffrey Dahmer all the way to some of the things that come out of our mouth to our spouses and our kids, right? The evil that we have is not just like a problem or an accident. It's a kingdom. It is a strong, sophisticated, smart, um, smart and, and strategized evil kingdom that is unseen. The unseen kingdom is greater than even the most violent, vicious, um, sexual, uh, grotesque armies that, that, that ever lived on this earth. The unseen kingdoms look like that, but they're worse, is the point. And that evil, that sin is not just a, a little mistake you made in third grade. It's a poison. It's a poison that we've, that we've drunken, and it, and it distorts our vision and the way that we see the world and the way that we see each other and the way that we see ourselves, that evil is a prison that we can't get out of, that evil is a person that the snake that came to Adam like had a plan, that he had a, a sophisticated, he's not just so dumb that he's going to become loud to you that you might be afraid of it and run to God. He's actually going to sneak into you and make you think that you're bigger than the kingdom of evil and you can solve it on your own is the way that the, the, the craftiness of the snake. So evil is not just a problem, it's a kingdom. So I, I read um, the screw tape letters, which is a great little you know, side assignment that I read for this week, thinking about spiritual warfare. And there's 27 chapters in uh, the screw tape letters by um, by C.S. Lewis, and it's all about this one senior demon, uh, uh, Uncle Wigglesworth or something like that, writing to his junior nephew demon and telling him about how he can he can he can manipulate and connive and tempt and intimidate his man, his target, the person that he's supposed to be tempting, this little junior demon, and it's it's phenomenal, it's it's remarkable. Uh, the way that C.S. Lewis, I think, really voices and embodies some of the things that go through my, my head on a, on a day-to-day basis. He talks about how wars in the kingdom of, of, of evil and the kingdom of heaven um, are useful, but also dangerous. That wars can cause a kind of suffering that cause, cause people, like when 9-11 happened, for people to come to their knees and cry out and, 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 and reach for a God that's bigger than them. So it's important in wars that people, people attach themselves um, to hate for the enemy on the other side. And he talks about how even in churches that the cause of those patriotic things can be so strong that actually the kingdom of heaven gets, gets put under the kingdom of the nation and that patriotism begins to, begins to shroud out love for the kingdom of heaven so much so that, that really the kingdom of heaven begins to serve the flag, right? Rather than me serve the kingdom of heaven. And it divides churches, that it's not so, so obvious as, yay, I'm happy that people are suffering in war. That's not the real game here. The real game is allegiance. And then he'll use wars and the survival and success of wars, both of those things, to get us aimed at the wrong enemies, both in our country and outside of our country, to divide churches. This is how shrewd he is. Or, for example, he talks about how the modern person is, is, is learned to be empathetic and how they learn to, you know, bridge the aisle on both sides and... and, and and how vain it is. I mean, it spoke straight to my heart this week of like how, you know, you can think that you're more sophisticated and evolved because you're not one of these people that are pitted up in the corner and you can talk to this person, this person likes you, and this person likes you, and you think that, it, that it's a reference to your peacemaking, it's a reference to your diplomacy, but actually it's just a surrendering into being a chameleon and falling for the vanity that you're the one that can be the bridge and, and to be the savior. 
and that you, you, actually, you actually surrender your, your, your authority and level of, of, of standing on the truth and so forth. It talks about how Christianity um, uh, gets, gets weakened, you know, when, when um, in seasons of drought and in seasons of the desert, when God has put those seasons to teach us to stand on our own two legs, to be servants of him, even when it hurts, even when it counts, for the temptation to sort of, have you ever felt this way? Oh, that was just the high school days. Like when I was passionate for Christ, that was because I was stupid. Now I'm more realistic. Now I'm more mature. Now I don't, I don't have to run. So I'll just, I'll kind of live half asleep, but kind of half awake. And this is really what, that was just a dream. This is really more like reality. The sophistication of the enemy. Like the enemy's not stupid. And he's gotten smarter men and women than you and me. He's taken down stronger men and women. So the whole point, I think, of the screw tape letters is not, here's a 27 lists of things to watch out for. And if you manage these 27 things, right, you'll be able to, to, to know what the enemy's doing. I mean, in some, some ways, it's, it's, it's educational on that front. But I think the basic point of the screw table letters, when I put it down, is I just put it down, and I'm just like, help! Help! I'm not strong as I think that I am. I'm not as smart as I think that I am. I think I have an enemy that is deep and dark and sadistical, and it uses all of my mind and my thoughts and pushes and pulls and, and, and basically leaves me helpless and weak without the help of Jesus. Right? This, is, this is the idea, you know, of spiritual warfare. It's like, is, is he's, he's calling us to cry out to, to, to Jesus because this is the reality about, about spiritual war and spiritual evil is we are not greater than our spiritual evil. It would not put down there to, to, to lead me away from temptation and deliver from evil if I could deliver myself. You think about your thoughts in the journal that you have down and the things that you thought about when you were 16 and the things you're thinking about now about your spouse, you're not smart enough. That's what we should come against. Why are we seeing a thousand demons? Because if you can't take on Rome, the empire of 23% of the globe, and take them down with your bare fist, then you probably can't take down the power that animates it. You are not strong enough to overcome. This is the point. It's not to recognize demons so that we can overcome them. It's to recognize demons to cry out to Jesus who will destroy them on our behalf. So what is spiritual warfare really? Ephesians 6 teaches us. Finally, be strong in the Lord. This is Ephesians 6 from Paul. Be strong in the Lord, mighty in power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Like, your decisions matter. They, they, play, they, they, they play a part in human history. But don't make mistake for your decisions and the battle. You make decisions, but God is the one that wins the battle. We do not fight the battle. This is God's battle. And as it's going to say in verse 12, God's battle is fought with Jesus as his weapon. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, which are way more than you can handle. Dark powers that have taken down stronger and smarter people than you. Against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And so as he goes on, um, and I think Maurice has, 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 a, has a slide for me, but the, 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 the task of, of standing firm in the midst of spiritual evil is, is not about bowing your chest and screaming louder. It's actually about realizing your weakness and yielding to Jesus to win victory on your behalf, to destroy the works of the enemy, the one that he came to do. And so here's what spiritual, evil, or spiritual warfare really looks like. If the, God, if the battle is God's and Jesus is the weapon, then spiritual warfare is, is, is not about these grandiose things, about things that I'm maybe... I mean, it is about praying for things overseas and so forth, but really the... the, the, the the, the heartbeat and, and, the, and the, the bullseye, really, of where spiritual evil, the line of scrimmage exists in our life is probably more like this. Paul says that spiritual evil is putting on the belt of truth. Honestly, spiritual evil and spiritual warfare is, is, 
it's probably as simple on a day-to-day as just telling the truth. That in your workplace and in your school, there's a bunch of people taking a lot of shortcuts, doing a lot of things, and getting rewarded for those things, and manipulating and getting promoted while you're getting demoted. And spiritual warfare is saying, you know what, I'm actually not going to buy into that kingdom, and I'm, I'm going to choose that it's always the right time to do the right thing. Like, spiritual evil is not like blaming Hamas. It's telling the truth. It's going home and doing what pretty much no one else does and speaking the truth and trusting that the truth is the thing that's going to bring freedom. That spiritual warfare, um, it, it, it may be about worship music and, and, and um, you know, certain rhythms and patterns that we do with our body and external things, but ultimately spiritual warfare, when, G, when Paul says to put on the breastplate of righteousness, is basically living out of Christ's righteousness, not mine. Here's what's going to keep you safe in a spiritual evil world that is bigger than you are and smarter than you are, is you got to walk into every room, and if, if you want to see the spiritual weapon of Jesus used against your enemies, you got to walk in these rooms, and you got to say, I'm not going to listen to the temptation in my head. I'm the biggest sinner in this room. Because everything in you is going to be like, ah, this sermon is for someone. No. This scripture is not written for, this scripture is written to you. I'm the biggest sinner in my marriage. I'm the problem. And the and one of the greatest wielding of spiritual warfare and advancement of the kingdom of heaven is when we, when, we, when we lose sight of these idealistic pictures of this dream that I have for me and realize that the, that the neighbor that God's called me to love is right here and right now, right next to me. I'm the biggest in this room. That Jesus' faith, to put on the faith, you know, to um, have the, the shield of faith, what does that mean? You know, what is the, to, to just believe that God's going to make everything happy right away? To me, the shield of faith is this, is that, is that there are statistics right now about the next generation, and there's statistics about church, and there's statistics about how we need to, and, and all of that is to get us running. It's all to get us spinning. But Jesus doesn't work on statistics. Like, the point of faith is not statistics. It's what he says. So how do you do spiritual warfare? It's not to go read statistics and get smarter. It's just to act like what he said is true. If only, that's the thing is that he doesn't need a million people to have a revival. It's only one-fourth of the soil is fruitful. And so what he's betting on is that he'll lose three-fourths of the soil if one-fourth of the soil in our heart or in the church can actually believe that what he says is true and actually yield themselves, let the gospel come to them before it ever goes through their lips. This, we don't need statistics. We need his strength. That the salvation of God, that everything that's happening to me is being turned for good and glory, that the word of Jesus, the sword of the Spirit, is not some mystical thing that I, you know, I can play out in my bedroom. It's like doing what he says. It's the simple thing. I, it's like, it's that, oh God, the mustard seed isn't big enough though, God. Like if I just do that one little thing, but look at all that we're drowning out here. He's like, listen, don't pay attention to the scale. Pay attention to what I say. This is spiritual warfare. Everybody's trying to go and take the mountain and not take care of the small thing that God is tell, telling them to do. The spiritual warfare is doing what he says. And so it's profound how it closes up here. Verse 14, he says, those tending to the pigs, they run off and they report to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. It turns out that actually the guy that was the demoniac was more blessed because the demoniac wasn't the only demonized people in this story. That the demoniac gets set free, but the townspeople are still enslaved with their love of money and pigs. And the demoniac ends up getting delivered of his demons while the, while the townspeople kick Jesus out of their town. So who's more demonized? The one that's overtly demonized by the wolf of Satan? or the one that's sneaky manipulated by the fox of Satan in their midst. 
That's the town people. So verse 15 says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed of the legion. This is the work of Jesus, not to be running around, but seated in heavenly places. Not to be naked and ashamed and spitting on everybody else and pretending like everybody else, but to be fully known and fully loved, to be dressed and robed in the righteousness of Christ and sane in his right mind. What more do we need? In a, in, what, like, what pig would you put a price tag on? You'd rather have that pig than have your peace of mind. Like the longer you, you live down on this earth, man, I don't care what kind of job or what kind of money or what kind of retirement. If you can give me peace of mind, I'm doing that, right? And so these guys are choosing pigs over peace, right? This, this is the work of, of the devil versus the work of Jesus because they think that pigs can bring, they think that money can be their solution. So verse 16, those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told, the, told about the pigs as well. And the people, listen, they pleaded that Jesus would leave, that he would get out. So here's what's interesting. In this passage, there are three commands, three requests, and then three permissions. There's first the demons that come out of the guy. Remember what they say? Jesus, just don't destroy us. Just send me into the pigs. Like, at least let me live with the pigs. Send me into the pigs. This is the first request, and Jesus allows it. Do you see that? He allows it. Second request is the townspeople say, Jesus, you're messing up our economy. You need to leave. Like, you're, you're, you're attacking our idols, so homie, don't play that. Like, you need to leave, right? And look what it says. He actually does it. He actually does it. The only person he disagrees with is the demoniac that gets turned into a disciple. Look what he says. As Jesus was getting out of the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begs to go with him, but Jesus didn't let him go. How many of you guys are, are thankful today for parents that told you no? How many of you guys are thankful because you saw parents that you thought were cool parents that were not that cool? And they said yes to their kids' destruction. Take note, it's not the worst thing when God tells you no. Like he's trying to deliver you. He's trying to save you. He's trying to help you. He actually, in the scripture, is more likely to allow and to hand over the people that, he, that he's handing over to their sin. In other words, sometimes the yes is not what we want to hear. And so he, that's, that's actually what, what, what Satan, what, what judgment and, 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 and discipline actually looks like is he just allows greedy people to be greedy. You know what happens when somebody gets greedy? When you're greedy, you actually think that everybody else is greedy. And so then that like spirit attracts and you end up hanging out with more greedy people because they make sense to you. And you find yourself in a world of greed. And now when you meet ungreedy people, you actually bring out the side of greediness, even though they're not usually greedy, they're more greedy in front of you because they're worried about you taking what they have. And you attract that. And that's what it, sometimes it's like, oh man, if you haven't heard God say no in a long time, you might not be in a good spot. Discipleship is a yes to Jesus, but it's also a no. It's a no, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have God tell you no or not. So here's what's really interesting, right? It's the first time. What is Jesus told every person once they get saved up until this point? He's told them two things. Number one, follow me, and number two, be quiet. When a demon comes out, he says, be quiet. When somebody gets healed, don't tell anybody. This is the first time Jesus goes public. Jesus tells the first person to go public, and he listens to what he says. He says, go home and tell everybody you see. Go home and tell everybody you see that the Lord has done mercy to you. Tell, go home and tell anyone, anyone that can listen to you. He's been, did you know that this is the capitalist? This is the irony is that his yes actually turns into a yes. Like he uses their disobedience against them. He sends a demoniac back into, into them. And by the time he comes back, there's a revival in this decapolis because of the one man telling. So why is this ironic is that a passage that's really 
spanning the scope of cosmic evil and Rome and Satan and principalities turns into a command just to send a guy to go home. Sometimes the most important spiritual warfare you're going to fight is just at home. And you're thinking it's with Iran. And you think that spiritual evil is with some dateline sex trafficker person that you're watching. It's in your home is the biggest place that you're going to confront it. You might be able to identify it in extremes versions in Mark 5 and in, in, in deep, dark places in, in, the, in our cities and nations. But the Mark might, this is, I think the scripture is telling us that the most important place we'll ever face spiritual evil is in the mirror and with our, with our friends. With the people we love the most and the people we do life with, with the people that we, we shirk and the people we brush off at church and the people we think are nobodies. We think that this kingdom is somewhere far out that the enemy wants us projecting onto some other thing that, that, that is out of our control and ignore the fact that it's right in our home. This is where spiritual warfare takes place in simple places that is sneaky and subtle but very powerful and important. The kingdom of evil trying to move in advance that Jesus comes to destroy it in our midst, not just to cope with it. Verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. And so I don't know if you've, um, you know, been on a, on a mission trip before and it's hot and it's Haiti and there's witchcraft and voodoo and crazy stuff that you never see. And sometimes it's almost easier to see the kingdom of God on the other side of the planet. But what is it that you really figure out when you go over there, right? Nine times out of 10, you don't go over there to go be a full-time missionary. Is that you go over there and you realize the mission's really at home. And you realize that like the community that you had wasn't because anything special happened. You just, it's because of the intention to add value to it with your plane ticket. And so now there was expectation on the line and how much expectation can change reality. And how now the team that I have and the people that I'm around, I'm like, why can't I just do this at home? You're stuttering over your words in, in Guatemala, and you're trying to figure out how to speak Spanish and remember back in high school when you weren't paying attention. And you're like, why don't I just do this in English? And you get over there, and you're like, oh, man, it's so clear to you, right, of the spiritual, because it's almost like it's, 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 it's through some other window that you see it from a new vantage point that you recognize how the kingdom of heaven is so much more worthy than the kingdom of evil. But it's so hard to do at home. That ultimately, you know, like, um, that, that, um, that, you, that, that sharing your story and, 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 and connecting with people, like, it's like, if you were a full-time missionary, you'd probably just spend five years getting to know the cultures and the custom, and you're like, well, why don't you go to Greenville? And so the spirit, I think what's happening is that there is an overt, extreme, heightened sense of introduction to spiritual evil on these pages of Scripture to let us know that Halloween is not a joke. And laughing at little Caspers and trying to dumb them down into little monsters we can control and laugh at is maybe coping, but it's not delivering. And that there is a real spiritual principality. It is poison, it is prison, and it is personal that has come to lie and, ch- and steal and kill. And it, is, it preys on weak people. It preys on your kids. It will go after your, your marriage when you're weak. It will go after you when you're tired. And here's the, here's the bad and the good news. You are not strong enough for it, and you're not smarter than it. And the minute that you recognize that, you might have a chance to call out the one that is. God, I'm not smart enough for this. I'm not going to pretend like I'm wiser than you. I'm going to do what you say. And I'm not stronger than this. And so I'm not going to just pretend like I'm going to go read a book to go figure it out and try it harder tomorrow. I'm actually going to trust that you're going to fight my battle on my behalf. My question for you is this, for intentional question for the week is, are you living in the freedom of Christ? Like we live in America, so it's like really hard to think like I'm not free. But sometimes in the places that you're thinking you're the most free, you're actually the most slave. Because whenever humans run out on their own and try and do whatever they want, whenever they want, they become slaves. They always go to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Have you ever noticed that? That people that actually have discipline and follow the Lord in discipleship are more free than people to do what they want? Are you really free? 
Sometimes it's hard for us to imagine when we're not encapsulated by Romans and we have the illusion of freedom without the reality of freedom. But are you truly free? This is what true freedom would look like. True deliverance of evil from around us is being fully alive. I'll just kind of go through these questions and ask the Spirit to to search you. Are you half asleep and half awake? Are you just making it? Are you living a life small enough for you to control? Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Do you still feel joy in your heart? Are you going through the motions? The work of the kingdom of heaven says there's more than just having a pulse. To be full of the Spirit is to be fully alive. Number two, do you sense both Satan's work to isolate you? That they make that face and you're sure that what they're saying with that face is they hate you. And you fill in all the gaps about what they're saying with the dot, dot, dots on that text message. And it's so much easier that you think that they're spitting venom at you and you have no venom that you're spitting back to them. It's easy to be fragile and sharp, that you're easily broken, but can deliver pain, but can't take it. Like all of these little small, tenuous methods that still do the same work as the legion to move us into isolation. But Jesus says that he came to do life and life together. That the person that you are with is the body of Christ. They're not as cool as you wanted to. I'm sorry, you know, but they are the image of God. And if they're in Christ, they are, they are, he died for them. And so that is what he means by life together is the person next to you. Are you chained or free? Do you own responsibility? Like freedom comes at the place of extreme ownership. That was my sin. That was my fault. These are my steps that I need to take that no one else can take for me. As long as I'm projecting and victimizing and blaming someone else, I am not free. I will not be free. This is where it comes is, is to follow Christ, to hear his no and his yes, to follow him. Am I running or seated? Am I frantically trying to think of the next strategy, believing that if I could just do that next thing, that everything will be well, or do I believe it is well with my soul as it is? Because he's died, because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Do I harm myself and others? Do I, am I my own worst sabotager? Do I sabotage relationships because I'd rather control them and break them up than rather have somebody else break my heart for me? Rather than trust that whatever pain that I'm going to walk through, I'd rather experience pain with him than happiness without him. And that true healing in pain is to, is to simply do life with him, to abide in him daily. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.